listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. The word of the Lord. Uh, how many of you have seen the Iron Man movies or just any of the other Marvel movies with Iron Man in it? Any Iron Man fans in here? Yeah? Um, I like the Iron Man movies, but I have a real problem with them in that when you watch Endgame, Tony Stark, Iron Man, dies. And you see in all these other movies, you know, he faces all these incredible, powerful villains and does it with such poise and ease. And, and then in this movie you know, Endgame, he dies. And you think, well, that, how, how can that possibly happen? He, he faced all these other powerful enemies, and yet when he comes up to this enemy, death, he has absolutely no power whatsoever. He has absolutely no control over it. The Apostle Paul calls death the last enemy. It doesn't budge for anyone. Its grip is powerful even on the most powerful humans and even on superheroes. Sure, it takes a lot to kill someone like Iron Man. It doesn't happen easily. But once death has a grip, there's nothing that can be done. There's no coming back. It's final. It's finished. It's over. And the last time we talked about superheroes here in church was Christmas Day. Some of you here might remember that. It was blizzarding. So thank goodness we have a different situation today. But that day we talked about some of the, the character traits and some of the abilities and powers of our favorite superheroes, and we took a look at, an, an up-close look, at a real-life superhero, Jesus, the greatest superhero who's ever lived. And we talked about his superpower to actually become small, how he used his powers to become small, to become weak, to become helpless, even a little baby. And then again, of course, on Friday, just a couple days ago, we saw more of that weakness as Jesus went silently like a lamb to the cross, and to his death. He sure didn't look like a superhero in either of those, not at Christmas, not on Friday. Looked weak and broken, helpless. But that was Friday, and today is Sunday. Today, everything changes. Friday marks the last time we will ever see Jesus in weakness again. From now on, we will only see Jesus in absolute power. And this is where the, the greatest story ever told gets really, really good. This is Jesus the superhero, part two. 
That's what I've called today's message. And I want you to notice three special powers Jesus has that are such good news for us today on Easter morning. And the first one, of course, is the obvious one. Jesus has power over death. You know, in all of our favorite superhero movies, the protagonist always faces a horrible villain that threatens the lives of innocent people. And, um, you know, often the hero has to put his or her life on the line, and it's astounding how much punishment Spider-Man or Superman can actually take. You're like, how are they not dead yet? You know, but that's just how the movies work, right? They just, they just don't die. They can go through all these kinds of things. But of course, in every case, there's one enemy that no hero can defeat, that no hero can bring someone back from, and that's death. But not so with Jesus. Our great hero stands face to face with our greatest enemy. He goes toe to toe with death and defeats it. Now, death, of course, in our story on Friday appears to have won because Jesus actually died. As the creed says, he died and was buried. They made sure, the soldiers made sure, they buried him. He was in the tomb for three days. But then on the third day, in an incredible display of his power, he came out of the tomb. He rose again from the dead. Jesus and Jesus alone is the superhero that can face death and win. It's incredible. Now, why is this important to our faith as Christians? After all, a lot of times you hear Christians talking about the importance of Jesus died for my sins, right? Um, In fact, that's usually one of the biggest pieces of what we share as the good news. But make no mistake, friends, the Bible tells us clearly that if Jesus did not rise again from the dead, his death was not all that great. His death was nothing special if he did not also rise rise from the dead. I mean, what kind of a savior is a dead savior? The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ also have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's Paul's version of like, if Jesus died for your sins but didn't rise again from the dead, it's not good news. It's not going to do you any good. You're still in your sins. You're still hopeless, and we're following a lie. So yes, Jesus' sacrificial death was important, but it would have meant nothing if he did not also rise from the dead, defeating our greatest enemy, death. It would be like a superhero dying in battle with a great villain. You think, well, yeah, that's touching. That's nice that he was willing to die trying to defend those innocent people, but the people are still in peril. The people are still in trouble. They still have a massive problem, right? He didn't really do them any good. And that's the same case with Jesus and death. But because Jesus came out of the tomb that first Easter morning, because he defeated our great enemy, absolutely everything changed for us. Listen to how the old poet George Herbert puts it in his famous poem. This is a dialogue between the Christian and death. And this is how your dialogue with death goes now that Jesus has defeated it. The Christian says, alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? And death replies, alas, poor mortal, Void of story, go spell and read how I have killed thy king. The Christian says back, poor death, and who was hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Death says, let losers talk, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. 
And the Christian says, finally, spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. See, friends, because you belong to the risen Savior, there's nothing that can sink you anymore. He has the power to defeat death, and therefore he has the power to keep you even in death, to keep you through it, and to raise you at the last day. Now, because of Jesus, you can say to death just what George Herbert says here. You can say, do thy worst. You can say, do the worst. What else are you going to do to me? He, I, one day, I'll be better than I am today. I'll be better than I am today, and you are going to be so much worse because you are going to be no more. That's, the, well, that's what the Christian can now say in the face of death. That's your reality because Jesus has power over death. Um, I was reading this last week how C.S. Lewis imagined this in the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the last, the second to last book, The Silver Chair, we get a glimpse of it as Eustace Scrub and Jill Pohl are kind of winding up their adventure in Narnia. And of course, those are the two children that came to Narnia after the Pevensey children had had, had their experiences and left. And um, Jill and Eustace come upon the funeral for King Caspian, one of the great kings of Narnia. Of course, we know that Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure, had died on behalf of the traitor Edmund in book two on the stone table. He had cracked the stone table, risen from the dead, and Lewis says that he caused even death to work backwards. And so now Aslan has power even over death. And in this book, we see him using his resurrection powers in the life of King Caspian. Listen to this. This is a long quote, but this is, this is fantastic language. He says, uh, this is, this is the, the journey of the kids. Then they saw that they were once more on the mountain of Aslan, high up above and beyond the end of the world on which, in which Narnia lies. But the strange thing was that the funeral music for King Caspian still went on, though no one could tell where it came from. They were walking beside the stream, and the lion went before them, and he became so beautiful and the music so despairing that Jill did not know which of them it was that filled her eyes with tears. Then Aslan stopped, and the children looked into the stream, and there, on the golden gravel of the bed of the stream, lay King Caspian, dead, with the water flowing over him like liquid glass. His long white beard swayed in it like waterweed, and all three stood and wept. Even the lion wept, great lion tears, each tear more precious than the earth would be, if it was a single solid diamond. Son of Adam, said Aslan, go into the thicket and pluck the thorn that you will find there and bring it to me. Eustace obeyed. The thorn was a foot long and sharp as a rapier. Drive it into my paw, son of Adam, said Aslan, holding up his right forepaw and spreading out the great pad toward Eustace. Must I, said Eustace? Yes, said Aslan. Then Eustace set his teeth and drove the thorn into the lion's pad, and there came out a great drop of blood, redder than all redness that you'd ever seen or imagined. And it splashed into the stream over the dead body of the king. At the same moment, the doleful music stopped, and the king began to be changed. His white beard turned to gray, and from gray to yellow, and got shorter and vanished altogether. And his sunken cheeks grew round and fresh, and the wrinkles were smoothed, and his eyes opened, and his eyes and lips both laughed. And suddenly he leaped up and stood before them a very young man or a boy. But Jill couldn't say which because of people having no particular ages in Aslan's country. And he rushed to Aslan and flung his arms as far as they would go around his huge neck. And he gave Aslan the strong kisses of a king. And Aslan gave him the wild kisses of a lion. At last, Caspian turned to the others. He gave a great laugh of astonished joy. 
See, friends, this is the power of your great superhero. He has defeated our greatest enemy, death, and now he can use his power at the last day to raise you from the dead. In his poem, Death Be Not Proud, John Donne writes, One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Brothers and sisters, on Easter morning 2,000 years ago, Jesus dealt death the death blow. He killed it by his death and resurrection and proves it by his empty tomb. That's the first great superpower we see in Jesus. But second, we see Jesus has the power to keep his word no matter what. So he has power over death, but he also has power to keep his word no matter what. Have you ever made a promise to someone, but you were unable to keep it because of extenuating circumstances? You know, maybe you got sick, maybe some financial crisis or some family emergency, all good excuses for breaking your promise or breaking your word. Well, what would happen if you died? If you made a promise to someone and then you died, do you think they're going to be mad that you didn't keep your word? I can't believe they didn't come through for me. You know, nobody's going to say that, right? That's a very good excuse. They died. So obviously they're not going to keep their promise to me, right? Actually, there was lots of people who came before Jesus who promised that they were the Messiah, who said they were the Messiah, dozens of them. And all of them, with no exception, when they were killed, most of them put to death, the entire movement fizzled. Why? Because they couldn't keep their promises. Death separated them from their ability to keep their promises, but not so with Jesus. Matthew highlights this in his gospel. See, because Matthew's a man of detail, um, I love the Chosen series that we're watching. If you haven't seen the Chosen, you got to see it. Come watch it with us next week, 6 o'clock on Sunday nights. And I love especially Matthew's character. I almost can't read Matthew's gospel, Susan, now without thinking of a guy with OCD who's just frantically trying to write down all these details to make sure he gives the most accurate record of Jesus' life. And... Um, And Matthew records something that the other gospel writers don't record, the words of the angel. Look at verse 5 and 6. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Now, when I read that, I mean, do you catch that? He has risen just as he said. This could come across kind of snarky. Right? If you get a snarky angel that day, your kids ever say this to you? Like, yeah, I did. And it's like, okay, lose the snark in the voice, okay? Let's not do it that way. But this angel has right to be like, he's not here. He has risen just as he said he would several times. Right? The angel would have good reason for being a little snarky because Matthew's gospel alone tells us that three times... Jesus promised he would die and rise again, which means he probably said it dozens of times. If Matthew records it three times, that's, that's saying there's great emphasis here. Jesus is probably talking to, this, to the disciples about this over and over and over again. And even lots of other people, the Pharisees, know that he's promised this. So Jesus probably made this a major, massive theme of his teaching and of his words to his disciples. And they still don't remember, right? Look at Matthew 16, 21. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Pretty clear, right? 
killed, third day be raised. Matthew 17, just a chapter later. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Also pretty clear. Anything you don't understand about this, you guys? Nope, no questions. All right. Let's go Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And again, the, you know, Peter, all the other disciples were like, Yep, we get it, Lord. Yep, we get it. We understand. Okay. Well, Matthew 27, this is after Jesus has died and been buried. Listen to what the Pharisees say. If you have any doubt that Jesus was talking about this all the time, the Pharisees even know about it. It says, The next day, that is the day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, that's what they call Jesus, said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You realize that's why they put the, the stone outside the tomb is because Jesus said this so many times. I'm going to rise again from the dead. The point is that Jesus totally called it. He totally called it. This was not a secret. Jesus promised that he would rise again from the dead, and he did exactly as he said he would. Friends, he has the power to keep his word every single time. Nothing can get in the way of him keeping his promise, not even death. Jesus is reliable. Jesus is dependable. Jesus is trustworthy. He always does exactly what he says he will do. Other human beings in your life will let you down. Other human beings in your life will be inconsistent at times. But Jesus, no, never, always, always he keeps his word. He always does what he says he'll do. He's so rock solid and dependable. He keeps his word even if death gets in his way. He's like, nope, I'm just going to rise from the dead. I'll keep my word. It's pretty amazing. Now, what's crazy is that despite Jesus saying this to the disciples over and over again, despite him promising that he would die and three days later rise again, none of them were expecting it. I find that hard to believe, right? Which is another reason why they say this, this must have happened, right? You would never make up a story in which you look so stupid as the disciples. But he said this over and over again. None of them were like, hey, it's the third day. Do you guys remember that teaching that he gave like a dozen or two dozen times about dying and rising again? from the Maybe we should go check it out. It's the third day. Nope. The women were on the way to bring spices. They fully expected to find Jesus' body still in the tomb. None of them were expecting it. I feel like that's often the way that we operate with Jesus, too. You know, how many times does he have to prove himself to be faithful and consistent and stable in our lives, and yet we're still a bunch of doubters, right? We fail to lean on him as the only reliable thing in our lives. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not in the tomb. He has risen just as he said he would. If he kept his promise to overcome death, is there any promise that he can't keep to you? Is there anything in your life that he can't come through on? He has the power to keep his word no matter what. Nothing will stand in his way. Which brings us to our final point. Jesus has power to forgive our failures. So he has power over death. He has power to keep his word no matter what. And he has power to forgive us in the midst of our failures. 
You know, Matthew's gospel includes the words of an angel and an appearance of Jesus himself to the women. And they say almost identical things here. They say, fear not and tell my disciples to go meet me in Galilee, right? So what we have to remember here is that the last thing the disciples did before Jesus was crucified is abandon him at his greatest hour of need. And Peter even took it a step further and denied him three times before Jesus died. Now, I don't know how your friendships work, but in most friendships, those are not small things. Those are usually friendship type of ending things. I was literally being killed and you guys all left me. So if it were me rising from the dead after all that, the first thing I would do would be to find some new friends. Right? I mean, I mean let's just be honest. Isn't that the first thing that you would do? I, w- I wouldn't be like Jesus here. I would be like, you, you know, to the women, I'd be like, you tell those faithless backstabbing cowards that I've had it with them. I'm done with them. I have put up with them way too long. I'm finding new disciples. But thankfully, that's not what Jesus does here. Instead, the first thing that Jesus does after rising from the dead, you realize, is he forgives his disciples. Sometimes we can overlook that. Notice what he says to the women. Verse 10, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers. That's not a term of anger and resentment and bitterness. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Mark's gospel even records the angel adding another piece. I love this, how Mark includes this. The angel says in Mark 16, verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter. (laughs) We all know why he did that, right? And Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. See that? So go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, why is Peter singled out? You know, I mean, certainly Peter was included in that, that whole group called his disciples. Go, go tell my disciples. Peter should have known he was included in that, right? No, Peter would have taken himself out of that. He would have said, disciples surely can't mean me anymore. I denied him three times. I'm out. I've blown it too, I've blown it too much. I've failed too hardcore. I cannot be included in that group of people anymore. So what's Jesus doing here? He's forgiving the disciples before they've even had a chance to repent. It's scandalous. He's working out the implications of his resurrection immediately. Their sin has been dealt with and defeated on the cross and through his resurrection. It's been paid for, and now they're welcome to come back to him forgiven and free. So what does Jesus do? He says through the angel, you go tell my disciples, and especially that jerk Peter, that I'll see them in Galilee that I still love them, and I forgive them, even Peter. That's what he's doing here. See, friends, the empty tomb means you too can be forgiven for whatever you've done. Whatever you've done. There is nothing that makes you out of the reach of Jesus' power to forgive. You understand, like he came out of death. He has power to forgive your failures. He has power to set you free from that today. You don't have to wait another day. I love the way that Charles Wesley puts it in his great hymn, And Can It Be? This is the story of all of our lives, isn't it? He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
See, friends, this is the power of our great superhero, Jesus. He's done it all. He's conquered our great enemies of sin and death. He's, he's got the power to keep his word no matter what the circumstance in our lives. And he has the power to forgive all of our failures, the worst of them, and to set us free. If you're here today and that news is new to you, we would love for you to start on this journey of being a disciple of the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus today. It's not just a one-time moment. It's just not just a one-time prayer, prayer, and commitment. This is a life of following him, being his disciple, journeying after him, becoming like him, as he'll give you the power in his Holy Spirit to do that. If you would like to talk with somebody, pray with somebody more about that, there's going to be people up here to pray with you. For the rest of us, brothers and sisters, Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. Yes. So let the celebration begin. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day that really sets apart every other day in our lives. We thank you for this Sunday 2,000 years ago that changed absolutely everything for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our great superhero, that you have conquered death and sin and Satan and hell for us, and that we can be free in you today. It's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray and celebrate today. Amen.